Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Chip Bishop. I'm the director of student programs here. I want to welcome you here uh, for this awesome event tonight. As you can see from the lack of elbow space in this very large F.A. Hayek Auditorium, it's a very popular event. Uh, in fact, we had over 500 people register to attend the event. So if you think this is full, uh, just think of the several hundred other people in the building that are watching in different locations. Um, I also want to extend a, a special welcome to the hundreds or even thousands who are watching online. I checked the analytics before coming down here today, and uh, we've got virtual attendees from uh, places ranging from Argentina to England, from Canada to Malaysia, Kenya to Romania, uh, and even from Wichita, Kansas. <laughs> so uh, thank you all for joining us. Um, though we, uh, we're not all in the same physical space, uh, we want to make sure that you know that you can all collaborate and talk to each other virtually using Twitter and the hashtag uh, LVCDebate. Um, last year, we were the number one trending topic in DC, and I think we can do it again. So uh, be talking to each other uh, throughout the debate. That's also how you'll be able to post questions during the Q&A uh, if you're tuning in from online. Um, all of this uh, under, underscores kind of an impressive point uh, that we somehow attracted hordes of young people to talk about political philosophy and libertarianism and conservatism at that. Uh, on one hand, this deeply contrasts the stereotypes of, of our generation, uh, the lazy, selfish, me monsters who just want to do drugs, have sex, and live off <clears throat> handouts, whether it's welfare from the government or uh, living in our parents' basements. Uh, but on the other hand, it thoroughly complements the, re the recent editorializing of The Atlantic, uh, commenting on, on a Pew study that was recently released, um, that millennials are the most confounding generation. It's a very fascinating piece. I encourage you to check it out. Our generation is very confused. And uh, thankfully, we have some people here to talk uh, some more about the way that we view political philosophy. Events like this are heartening because they demonstrate that young people, even if they don't agree, are interested in robust philosophy and how to apply it to political, academic, and personal uh, spheres of life, and I'm glad that we can play a role in facilitating that discussion. I look forward to hearing from many of you during the Q&A portion of today's debate and at the reception to follow, uh, which, because we have so many people, is going to be a double-decker reception. I don't know if you've ever been to one of those before. Uh, I want to now turn and thank our panelists, uh, fielded from the intern squads at both uh, Cato and the Heritage Foundation, representing libertarian and conservative perspectives, uh, respectively. Uh, a special thank you goes out to the dedicated research partner from each team who had the inglorious role of doing lots of work uh, and yet not getting to bask in the spotlight uh, of sitting on stage. So thank you to Darren and Lindsay. Their bios are on the handout that you received when you were walking in, uh, as also is the full list of resolutions. We're going to cover half of them through the formal uh, debate, and then you can ask the rest of them in the Q&A if you feel so uh, inclined. Um, uh, this is a good time to also make clear that uh, the panelists do not represent the organizations where they're currently interning. As you can see, their placards say libertarian and conservative. They don't say Cato or heritage. That's on purpose. Uh, this is a debate about ideas represented by intelligent people who have their own opinions, views, and policy perspectives, and they're not to be construed as in any way speaking on behalf of either the Cato Institute or the Heritage Foundation. They can speak for themselves. Um, for anyone covering the event for media outlets, articles, or personal blogs, I ask that you respect the distinction we've made about the panelists and cite them as libertarian or conservative accordingly. 
Uh, so you've been warned because I'm also going to charge the rest of you to mercilessly ridicule anyone who doesn't follow that and says Cato said something or Heritage said something because that should never happen. So you can just all put tons of comments about how bad that person listens. Um, this is the fourth year that we've hosted this event. Uh, it's grown a lot, not only in size, but I think also in quality. And for that, I must thank my colleagues at Heritage, Angeli Schrader and uh, Heather Fitzmaier, who's tuning in online. Hi, Heather. Uh, for the many hours that they spend collaborating with me and tweaking the resolutions and the format as we work to make this Hallmark event better and better every year. Also, our event staff here at Cato is amazing, facilitating uh, this whole event to make sure that seats are filled, that drinks are cold, and that everyone has a great experience. And with 500 people here, uh, that's quite a feat. Uh, so thank you all. I hope this event will also um, serve to engage you uh, in the world of ideas and that you'll seek out other opportunities because of it to learn more. Uh, speaking of, I want to take the opportunity to tell you a few organizations. Uh, just Students for Liberty is one of the fastest growing networks of pro-liberty students in the world. Many of you, I'm sure, have heard of it. Uh, the mission uh, that they have is to provide a unified student-driven forum uh, to support students and student organizations dedicated to liberty. They provide materials to student groups to distribute on campus, including their book series, the newest of which is right here, called uh, Peace, Love, and Liberty. They provide free copies to you if you're running a campus group to distribute on your campus. It's good for discussion. Hopefully you don't agree with everything that's in it, and that's uh, a good reason to have more debate on your campuses. You can order free copies of these until August 1st, uh, and they'll be distributing them for the beginning of the school year. So I encourage you to do that. They'll also be hosting 21 regional conferences across the country, so there's bound to be one at a school near you. I encourage you to stop by the resource table outside uh, and talk to some SFL people and get some more uh, information on that. Second, America's Future Foundation is a network of liberty-minded, conservative, and libertarian uh, young professional leaders. AF hosts unique opportunities for students and young professionals like you guys uh, to expand your professional network, to build your resume, and develop leadership skills vital to postgraduate success. Upcoming events that they have, uh, you can find them uh, at americasfuture.org, include Is Grad School Right for You? It's hosted with the Mercatus Center on July 29th, and on Capitol Hill, they're hosting a leadership luncheon on August 1st. Uh, feel free to catch up with Greta, one of my colleagues here at Cato, and also AF's Director of Student Outreach. Um, after the program, she'll be out at the table just outside of these doors so you can learn more. You can also find uh, Cato internship brochures on the table outside the auditorium. Well, we host an <coughs> internship during every academic semester, summer, uh, fall, and spring. We seek undergrads, graduate students, recent grads for posts in a, in a whole range of positions, ranging from policy to media to external relations and uh, operations. Um, and speaking of interns, we'll now switch gears to the reason that you're all here tonight, which is the big debate. Uh, is libertarianism or conservatism the better political philosophy? Um, this forum is to provide an opportunity to lay out the similarities and clearly define the differences between the two paradigms. To lead us in this discussion tonight, we're joined by, by Matt Lewis. Uh, as the moderator. He's a writer, commentator, and blogger at The Daily Caller and a contributing uh, editor at theweek.com. His work has appeared in GQ, The Telegraph, Politico, and The Guardian. And he's been quoted or cited by major media outlets, including New York Magazine, The Washington Post, The New York Times, and The Associated Press. Familiar with debates, he's also appeared on MSNBC, CNN, Fox News, C-SPAN, uh, ABC's Nightline, and HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher. He has uh, covered DC politics for many years and currently lives with his family in Alexandria, along with his dog, who I'm sure I'll mention, uh, <laughs> named Uncle Rico. Uh, a self-defined contrarian conservative, Matt has sympathies for both sides of tonight's debate. 
Uh, he has also uh, many other accomplishments. I won't take up more of the mic time uh, from him to discuss those. So uh, I'm pleased to have you here, Matt, and please uh, join me in welcoming Matt to the stage. Uh, I also have to say that I, I've been told to say that the, my comments do not represent the Daily Caller as well. Um, so do not attribute them to the Daily Caller. Uh, most of my comments have been list, lifted from Yahoo Answers. So just be, be aware of that. I, I, put, I throw out that disclaimer. Um, you know, thank you, Heritage, uh, for participating. Thank you, Cato, for, for hosting. Um, you, you all do have the, the flyer, but um, with Cato, we have Jack Bustle and Philip Trammell. Um, and with, uh, with Heritage, Mark DePlacido and Louis Kona. Let's give them a round of applause for being here. It occurred to me you guys could potentially be in the debate without having your names mentioned. So I thought I would, I thought I would do it because, you know, you never know. Not everybody at home probably gets the flyer. Um, this is a cool debate to have. Uh, a lot of debates that take place uh, in college dorm rooms after, you know, well-lubricated dinners are, are, are hypothetical and philosophical, um, and many of them are actually irrelevant and meaningless. But the, this contest between uh, libertarians and conservatives is actually pro you know, arguably the most important intellectual debate of our, of our time, and I would actually argue likely to be the backdrop for the 2016, if not presidential election, then certainly Republican primary. So this is a really interesting debate. I mean, I, I would suspect that some of the arguments that, you, that we hear tonight are going to be things that maybe Rick Perry says about Rand Paul, uh, Marco Rubio says about Rand Paul, <laughs> Ted Cruz says about, I mean, you know, it, it goes on and on. So this is a big deal, and, and who knows if Rand, you know, if Rand Paul's the nominee, which, you know, it could happen. I think he's ahead in, in uh, last time I checked, in, in Iowa and New Hampshire, Hillary Clinton versus Rand Paul. So uh, it's a very important debate to be had, and I think we're going to get to some pretty interesting uh, discussions tonight. Of course, it's not a new debate. I mean, um, I, I don't want to spend too much time talking about it, but from Goldwater to Reagan, uh, Friends of Liberty have benefited by sticking together in the long run. But I think we are left struggling with this question today about this thing called fusionism. And the question is, was it merely a marriage of convenience, something that worked as long as the Soviet Union and communism were you know, an existential threat? Or are conservatives and liberal, uh, sorry about that. <laughs> there they go again. Are are conservatives and libertarians actually natural allies? We're going to talk about that tonight. And maybe by the end of tonight, we're all going to have drinks together, I think. Things could happen. I mean, you know, nothing weird. <laughs> I know it's Cato, but it's not nothing like that. But fun, good things could, you know, friendships could, bonds could come out of tonight. <laughs> Ho hopefully, we'll gain insight. Uh, into the potential for future compatibility and cooperation between these two philosophies. Um, another reason that I'm excited to be a part of this is that the left is clearly divided over some of these same arguments. On the left, you have arguments over drones, over civil liberties, but they're not really having this public debate. Uh, they're sort of towing the line, and, and I think 
staying quiet about their differences and avoiding these internecine public debates. And to be sure, there's, there's a benefit to not airing your dirty laundry. There's a benefit to not publicly hashing it out and fighting with your friends. But I think, I think, my, I think my libertarian friends and my conservative friends too will, will appreciate this, this point, that the side most willing to be introspective, the side most willing to publicly hash out their differences is the side that will win in the free market of ideas because you're actually having that debate. So I, I think we welcome the free market. Let, let's let the best ideas win tonight. Um, and I congratulate you for being a part of, a part of this free market of ideas. Uh, now a little bit about me and a little bit about the rules of the debate. Um, first, in interest of transparency, uh, as Chip mentioned, I do self-identify as a conservative, although kind of a bad one. So, you know, a contrarian conservative. So for, you know, I guess first I'll say my conservative bona fides, which essentially consists of the fact that although my dog's named Uncle Rico, um, my sons are named Burke Blackwell Lewis and Beckett Wilberforce Lewis. So that's a point for you guys. Um, <laughs> but on a lot of issues, including immigration, where I'm essentially a libertarian, and for example, I've supported uh, the decriminalization of marijuana possession. Um, you, you can applaud that if, if, you, if you're, you know, if you want. I'm going to beg for your applause for weed, but you can do it. Um, and I have to I also have to confess, I'm a huge listener of podcasts, and I find myself listening to Tom Woods' podcast and Econ Talk with Russ Roberts. So anyway, that has influenced me, and I think certainly economically, fiscal conservative, very compatible with both sides. I just put this out there in interest of full disclosure since I'm moderating the debate, but I'm going to try to avoid being Candy Crowley tonight. Anyway, so honestly, you should, it shouldn't matter. Like, I could be a Marxist, and it honestly shouldn't matter. I could still moderate the debate. So a few words about the debate. Um, first, you should follow the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag LVCDebate. That's pound. It used to be number in my day. Uh, LVCDebate. And you know what? You should follow me on Twitter. Shameless self-promotion. I'm at Matt K. Lewis. You can publicly criticize and shame me on Twitter, uh, and uh, so please do that. I'm going to be strict tonight. I'm going to have a warning. Now, we, we had some trash talk earlier downstairs. I have to be on. We had the weighing in. Uh, we've done testing to make sure that there are no, in, you know, no drugs in your, no drugs in your system. Uh, <laughs> no performance-enhancing drugs in your system, and they've... They've been waiting. We've had some trash talk downstairs. We've had some pizza. Um, but I'm going to be strict. We're, we have strict time limits. Um, I'm going to, uh, but I, and, and let's be civil out there. Let's all be civil tonight. Uh, it's, it's entirely, there, there, you know, this will sound really liberal, but there are no winners tonight um, <laughs> and no losers. You all will get a participation trophy. It's possible that everyone could win tonight. Not really, but okay, play along with me. Somebody's gonna win tonight. I'll ask the audience to turn, out, uh, to turn off your cell phones or put them on silence. Um, please be civil. And uh, with no further ado, please join me uh, in welcoming the participants. We, we had a, we flipped a coin and Heritage won. Uh, 
one. So what we're going to do is we're going to start off with some opening statements, and it will uh, essentially be opening remarks and rebuttals. For that, we're going to go Heritage, Cato, Heritage, Cato. Uh, after that, when we get into the topics, we're actually going to go, it's, it's a weird order, but let me explain it. It would be basically Heritage, Cato, Cato, Heritage, Cato, Heritage, Cato, Cato, Heritage, Heritage, Cato. The reason for that, it, it'll make sense once we start doing it, but the reason for that is so that each side has time for a rebuttal. Um, <laughs> with no further ado, let's uh, welcome everybody and we'll have Heritage start with their opening statement. Heritage. Thank you for the opportunity to speak here tonight on why conservatism is the more desirable political philosophy. We'd like to thank our team at Heritage for all their support, especially Angelis and Heather, for making this day possible. And we also thank our friends at Cato for hosting this debate. Most often, libertarians and conservatives find themselves standing together and saying no to big government. And of course, we all agree that markets usually work better than government, that property rights are essential for a healthy society, and that Justin Bieber is all the evidence we need to make the case for a stricter Canadian immigration policy. <laughs> but conservatives and libertarians both share a common heritage in the classical liberal political tradition. Our disagreement is not about the importance of freedom, but about what it means to be free and what it takes for a nation to stay free. Although our conversation tonight will cover a variety of policy matters, we should note that underlying each issue is a deeper conflict over the true nature of freedom and the human person. Frank Meyer, a noted libertarian, helped the 20th century's effort to fuse conservatism and libertarianism into a workable political movement. Meyer warned that libertarianism ran the risk of descending into what he called libertinism. For Meyer, libertinism, quote, ignores the proper foundations of liberty, end quote, by treating individual freedom as an absolute moral end, rather than as a political principle that allows individuals to fulfill their moral responsibilities. Now, I know that most libertarians consider voting to be irrational, but I'd like to suggest that this evening is more of a referendum on what freedom is, rather than a debate on a series of unrelated policy matters. Conservatives acknowledge that each of us has a meaningful purpose, to lead a flourishing life. Because human beings are by nature social and political, politics serves an important role in securing the conditions that allow men and women to flourish. With the freedom that we all cherish comes responsibility to ourselves and others. A man with a tyrannical soul, although free in appearance from every external restraint, is the most unfree because he is ruled by his desires. It is this sort of man that Meyer warns against when he speaks of the dangers of libertinism. Because individuals have a limited capacity to choose rightly in their pursuit of freedom and virtue, government has an interest in encouraging and preserving the mediating institutions and the moral values that keep us free and flourishing. Of course, this perspective is represented most eloquently by that wise conservative, F.A. Hayek, after whom this Cato Auditorium is named. At a 1982 lecture at the Heritage Foundation, Hayek offered a thesis that the principles of property, honesty, and family arose in human society not out of some abstract design, but organically because they worked. Hayek didn't only warn against socialism, he also warned against efforts to redesign the norms of family, quote, whose functions we have never understood, which people dislike because they do not understand their function, end quote. The fight over marriage is the most obvious example of this issue. America faces a crisis of broken families, single mothers, and generations raised to know no other life besides dependency on the state. At the same time, libertarians have been busy in court, working to break down an already weakened understanding of marriage. 
Even the great libertarian Charles Murray, in his recent book, Coming Apart, argued that the poor and needy don't need to be freed from marriage. They need the true freedom that comes from a right understanding of marriage. The family, which relies upon strong marriages, is one of the mediating institutions that Alexis de Tocqueville describes as providing a space between the individual and the state. Our freedom, Tocqueville argues, is best preserved when the mediating institutions of family, religion, and local associations are vibrant. I'm sure that libertarians will acknowledge the important role of these institutions. They will say that by fighting against government intrusion, they best protect these institutions. This is partially true. Many of the threats our, institu our institutions face are from big government. But on a number of issues, libertarianism in America has privileged individual autonomy for, autonomy for its own sake at the expense of civil society. Once these institutions are undermined, then the lonely, isolated individual has nowhere else to turn to but the state. Paradoxically, it is libertarianism which has led to statism. Conservatives seek to strengthen these mediating institutions by, yes, limiting the role of government, but also by emphasizing that our freedom incurs responsibility to ourselves and others. Our rights do not trump our duties to family and neighbor. As we speak here tonight, there are people who are suffering, children in broken homes, lives destroyed due to drugs, millions living under the rule of totalitarian state. Mark, tonight, Mark and I will demonstrate that there exists a political philosophy that rejects the false choice of government dependency and rugged individualism for those struggling in our society. We know that we are born into communities, that families matter, that life is sacred, and that our freedom bestows upon us dignity. Our founders clearly understood that we should not be anti-government. Rather, we should believe in a proper role of government. America is the greatest nation today, and conservatism is a more desirable political philosophy because it provides for and protects true freedom and the spiritual and physical dignity of each human person. Finally, conservatism is a great yes to what we hold dear as Americans, to ordered liberty and prosperity. Conservatives say yes to life, yes to the family and local communities, and yes to the founding principles of our nation. Thank you. All right, very good. Now we'll go the opening statement from Cato. All right. Thank you all for coming. Uh, my name is Philip Trammell. I'm a proud Cato intern, libertarian, human. <laughs> so far, I happen to be an American. You'll have to forgive me for starting all the way back at the basics, but as we consider such a fundamental question of political philosophy, I think it may be helpful to take a few minute, uh, take, a, take a minute to do so. I don't know where you're all from, but at least most of us are citizens of some country in which we have a say over what the policies of our government will be. We, through our government, have the power to choose policy across the entire array of spheres of human life, a policy on international trade and immigration, work licensing and marriage. In each of these arenas, we face a set of possible alternatives, and we have to rank them to find the best one to choose. We have to have some definition of goodness against which we see how the goodness of each option measures up. But of course, we don't vote on policies arena by arena. We choose between representatives, each of which has a bundle of policy preferences, each of whose elements we may or may not approve of. And so what we really have to be able to rank are bundles of options. We have to be capable of the thought, well, candidate A isn't as good as candidate B in this arena, but he more than makes up for it in this other one. For example, 
the measure of goodness when it comes to drug policy cannot be the one that most reduces the use of drugs, net. Because then we would have no measure of goodness in tax policy that allowed us to trade off between bad drug policy and bad tax policy when forced to choose among imperfect options. In sum, to fulfill your duties as a citizen of a republic, you cannot lean entirely on some disposition, such as the conservative respect for tradition or any other. You must have some single measure of political goodness that spans all spheres of life. Deciding on this measure precisely is difficult, as all big questions are. But it must exist, just as surely as we must do our best to determine it. And uh, as a libertarian, I strongly believe that a policy set is good to the extent that it maximizes the ability of individuals to pursue happiness, not the moral inclinations or dictates of the conservatives of the day, but happiness as they define it in terms of their own values. We believe in the correctness of this general principle, not just because it seems kind of plausible, but because we see that it works well. That is, as we will do our best to explain, it consistently recommends policies in every sphere of life, across time and space, recommends policies whose effects, properly understood, most people ultimately approve of, even those who do not take the libertarian title. People across the political spectrum want to decrease the rate at which people suffer the health consequences of dangerous drugs. As it turns out, there is strong evidence to suggest that driving the drug trade into the black market makes those ill consequences more severe. People across the spectrum want the poor to have the opportunity to rise out of poverty. As it turns out, market interferences and welfare bureaucracies often do more harm than good. People across the spectrum want to keep the liberties we enjoy here safe from foreign aggressors. As it turns out, we are freer and safer when we hold to a limited, realistic understanding of what our military can and cannot do. After a long enough litany, we can no longer say we are seeing isolated instances of government failure. What we're seeing are evidences for a coherent and powerful philosophy of deep respect for individual choice and deep skepticism for the machinations of government, even when directed to seemingly virtuous ends. What we're seeing, and hopefully what we will see throughout the course of this evening, are evidences for libertarianism. Throughout the past few hundred years, broadly speaking, the shifts that have come to be seen as unambiguous progress have consisted of breaking chain after chain, allowing more and more kinds of self-determination and free association. On the fields, of course, the end of serfdom and slavery, at the marketplace, the breaking of guilds and heritable trades. In the bedroom, the repeal of miscegenation and sodomy laws. Because as we now know, along with allowing people to freely live and associate and pursue their goals, have come astoundingly abundant fields, rich marketplaces, and yes, happy bedrooms. All things that libertarians uh, support. <laughs> Let us all vote in another age of ever truer individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. I can't predict what path we as freer people would choose to take, but I dare predict that our society will have, would have improved in my eyes and yours alike. Thank you. All right. I like that thing where you just get up and people know to wrap it up. It's powerful. I love that. Um, so those were the opening statements. Obviously, uh, they were a little bit longer than a lot of what we're going to do. Next, we're going to go to rebuttals uh, that, are th that are just three minutes, uh, and we're going to go back to Heritage for a rebuttal.
All right, um, so I'm gonna start, and if I have time and Lewis wants to chime in at the end, he uh, will do so. So I mainly want to address the basic rubric by which uh, it seemed our opponents laid out um, for decision-making in our country, uh, what the metric should be in terms of both voting and both how we conduct ourselves uh, as citizens of this country, and that metric was uh, basically individual choice. Now, conservatives have a few issues um, with this on its own because individuals can be a range of different people. An individual can be your mother who raised you. It could be your neighbor. It could be your coworker, or it could be an Islamic extremist, or it could be someone who doesn't understand the role of marriage in society and doesn't understand the importance of virtue. Basically, the question uh, that that comes up when one accepts individual choice uh, and every individual's choice is sacred is that some people's choices are better than others. And it takes conservatism, it takes a solid education, it takes a recognition of other people in one's community to come to understand which choices are actually best, uh, both for oneself and for one's community. Uh, now, one of the, the examples he brings up uh, is happy bedrooms. Uh, and I want to kind of address this in, in context of kind of the opening to his speech, which, which talked about how there are really only two options. Um, he talked about it a little less directly, but he was basically referring to the fact that people have a choice between, between Democrats and Republicans in this country. Um, and I think the reason for that is that most people eventually come to understand that there really only are two choices that culture and virtue are closely connected to liberty because they're codependent on each other. Uh, and also that immorality and government dependence are also reliant on each other. And Happy Bedrooms is a funny example because I would say that's probably the number one cause of pain and suffering in this country right now. Uh, it sounds very extreme, but if you look at the statistics for basically what you know, unabashed sexual license does to people in our country today, you end up seeing a lot of kids who grow up in single parent homes and are much more at risk for dropping out of school, for doing drugs, for ending up in prison. Uh, basically, they don't have that balanced home, they don't have that education, and they don't have that unconditional love that's necessary to make one truly understand what freedom is about. All right, and Cato. All right. Um, uh, I'd like to uh, begin by pointing out that uh, libertarians who believe in individual choice do not allow Muslim extremists the choice to blow up other people because it violates their, you know, their property and their persons. Um, we recognize that some people's choices are better, better than others, but we don't trust that the conservatives of the day um, have significantly better choices than anyone else. And we believe that the marketplace over time will root out uh, bad practices and give rise to good ones. They don't. As we believe it, as we see it, defenses of conservatism generally come in two forms. Uh, the first of which is that um, rapid social change of any kind um, to a uh, new kind of uh, way of raising a family or the new, a new kind of 
uh, you know, a, a new attitude towards immigration is, uh, is a dangerous task to discard old trusted institutions for new and only hopefully better ones. By this understanding, conservatism is a disposition, which is essentially founded on trust that generations before us put deep thought into those customs we inherited from them. Um, that might work as a rule of thumb, but it's unusable as a foundation because it makes no recommendations as to which of those traditions to throw away. Uh, you know, of course, many ideas once thought progressive proved worse than those they were replacing, right? I wouldn't argue for any particular, you know, failed, failed family. But many other changes in society have proved better. And so instead of deferring to the status quo, history forces us to take a stand among the paths that we face at any time. And anyone who is not a conservative recognizes that. I hope you'll join me as a libertarian in particular in believing that those ideas that will ultimately stand the test of time are those that place individual liberty at their center. So the second common uh, backbone and reasoning of a standard freedom-loving American conservative today, um, which we've also heard a lot of, is that as great as individual liberty may be, a free society needs to be protected from the excesses of its own liberality. Immigrant labor is good so long as we only let in the right kinds of workers, for instance, the ones our economy actually needs. You know, drugs may be um, good only if they're approved for strict medical use. But the reality is that markets would regulate the flow of immigration just fine as uh, di different kinds of workers were attracted in proportion to the different wage rates that employers offered them. Uh, the reality is that drugs of any kind are sold are safer when sold over markets than black markets. So um, as a whole, the libertarian political system doesn't need to be preserved by, uh, preserved by a strong interventionist state. We believe it needs to be preserved from a strong interventionist state of the kind that misguided conservatives insist on building. Thank you. Good timing. Right on the zero. That's good. Now we're going to go to the lightning round where the scores can really change. We have selected four topics that we're going to talk about. Uh, and the rest, there is a Q&A coming up. So if you, you can ask the other questions. Or uh, if, if you want, you could ask some of the ones that, uh, that uh, were not asked. Maybe we forgot something. The first thing we're going to debate is the government has a role in protecting virtue. And this is going to go a bit faster. Uh, we're going to spend two minute answers and one minute rebuttals. And a reminder, uh, the order is going to be essentially heritage, Cato, Cato heritage for this. So it, it might seem weird, but we've actually plotted it out in advance. Uh, so again, uh, the topic is the government has a role in protecting virtue. We're going to start with heritage. So this question is in itself inherently flawed because the state always, either through its tax policy or laws, promotes either virtue or vice. But the libertarians like it or not, Laws are, are inevitably a value statement about what is good and what is bad. The state cannot be virtue neutral. For example, legalizing hard drugs like heroin would, would inevitably encourage destructive habits by making these drugs available to the law-abiding public. There is nothing neutral about that. Many libertarians deny the ability for one, to know what, for one to know what the good is. They underestimate the ability of the human mind to discern the good through reason, and they fall prey to the absurd relativism which denies objective truth. The law, if laws are not grounded in objective statements about right and wrong, they are meaningless. We can all know that there are certain things that are good in themselves, life, knowledge, friendship, leisure, and reason, just to name a few. The state's protection of these goods should be unquestioned. For example, we know that we can protect the good of life. We should be unafraid of minimal government intrusion in the pre-political institution of the family, 
through simple and strong laws that protect the permanence and commitment of marriage. A tax policy which promotes and incentivizes hard work is another way of preventing the vice of government dependency. All of these are just a few, few brief ways in, that which highlight the proper role of government in protecting and recognizing these goods. Thank you. Cato? Libertarians care deeply about promoting virtue and the common good through voluntary private institutions. We believe <clears throat> that conservatives have it backwards. Once we secure liberty, strong, effective youth groups, churches, and other virtue-promoting civic institutions flourish, not the other way around. For the government to have a role in promoting virtue, however, the government must first be able to decide what virtue is to be promoted. And our government has a terrible track record. Self-righteous Americans through the ages have tried to ban everything from alcohol to pornography, sodomy to miscegenation. Their efforts seem counterproductive and downright immoral to us today. Even the conservatives who once supported them later repented of their ways. But these are not disconnected instances of failed policies from which we can move on and learn. Such misjudgments are inherent features of every government of flawed human beings, once given the power to impose their idea of virtue on others at no cost themselves. Even when the political elites truly have a virtue worth promoting, the mechanisms they construct to promote it are often captured by the most zealous believers. Movements for temperance turn into prohibition. Believers in promoting American values in the media were overtaken by paranoid anti-communists. Today, I think most people in this audience would grant that gluttony is bad. However, the specter of obesity does not warrant subjecting every soft drink to the purchase to the approval of Michael Bloomberg. <laughs> At the utterance of the word virtue, however, the conservative stops being concerned with the oppression that power brings. He only worries about who wields it. He drops the principles of presumed individual liberty and strictly enumerated powers of government, and he accepts the idea that the government has the right and the ability to legislate righteousness in all areas of life. There's a better way. Instead of having virtue defined by the arbitrary and corrupting political process, let us have a government that neutrally allows each person to reap the benefits and bear the own costs of their actions. Virtue should flourish or succeed by those who hold them. Over time, people will work out what virtues work best for themselves. All right, now Cato has a one minute rebuttal to Heritage. Uh, so probably the <laughs> biggest point that Heritage likes to make is that every law is a moral law, which would in this case equate allowance with endorsement. I can allow my friends to go out in an awful outfit, doesn't mean I endorse it. <laughs> um, <clears throat> the problem with equating this is that it allows, it expands the sphere of government intervention into every facet of life. And once the government has found the ability to regulate a thing, that ability only expands, opening the doors to future tyranny. Uh, they bring up cases of heroin and life, equate allowing people to use drugs with endorsement of that. And that is clearly shown uh, time and time again to bring in bad behaviors that wouldn't otherwise be around. All right, and now Heritage has a one-minute rebuttal. So I don't understand why libertarians are with us on, on this issue uh, of limited government, of individual freedom, uh, because we recognize that, the, that civil society protects our freedom from the state, that family, local communities, associations provides a buffer between us, the individual, and the state. But what the libertarians have to understand is that their excessive view of freedom, which I, I would like for them to, to tell us where this comes from, undermines these very institutions by placing the self ahead of our family our self-interests ahead of our commitments to our community and those around us, our rights 
do not trump our duties to, to those around us, to our allies, to our families. Uh, and I also like to say that this uh, uh, happiness as a standard of all of our laws and all of our choices is a sure way to uh, destruction of our civil society uh, because we, we just deny that there's an objective good there, that there are certain things that are right and wrong, that it might make me happy to punch someone in the face, but that is a bad thing to do. Uh, and, our, and, the, and there's no reason why the government should not defend that or have a minimal intrusion upon the family, for example. I don't, I don't understand why the libertarians aren't for us when it comes to marriage policy, because we're the ones who want limited government intrusion, not the ones that are redefining things that are central and pre-political to our society. Okay, our next topic is individuals should be free to move across the U.S. border. This time we begin with Cato. Sorry, uh, okay. Every single argument that conservatives use against those on the left for the free trade of goods argues just as validly for the free trade of labor. When an American employs a worker from abroad, and when an American imports a new machine whose inputs happen to be food and clothing, the economic effects are exactly the same. With millions of people eager to work here, furthermore, the economic gains to uh, relaxing immigration laws would be vastly greater than to relaxing import quotas. As more people bid up the goods and lands we currently possess, we who currently possess them are enriched. A 2013 study found that Americans have $3.7 trillion more in housing wealth alone than we would in the absence of today's roughly 38 million immigrants. By keeping out tens of millions of other willing workers, shoppers, and home buyers, we are effectively leaving trillion-dollar bills on the sidewalk. Free immigration, however, even more dramatically benefits the immigrants themselves. A Mexican, for instance, can often make three times as much for a given job here as back at home. Far more importantly, many people come seeking protection for their lives. Today, as we turn the children at our border back south, we seem not to have learned the lessons of 1939. If we had had open borders back then, we would have saved far more Jews than we ever liberated Buchenwald and Dachau. The most humanitarian th thing we could do in the world today would be to welcome anyone in from anywhere. Skepticism of immigration is indeed a traditional American value. And we understand conservatives' fondness for skepticism of immigration on that count. Benjamin Franklin himself once asked, why should Pennsylvania become a colony of German aliens so numerous as to Germanize us instead of our anglifying them? who will never adopt our language and customs any more than our complexion. But we lovers of hamburgers and hot dogs are glad that the right of good German people to live where they would prevailed over Franklin's conservatism on this issue, and we hope that it will prevail over his misguided heirs today. I'm not sure he was wrong about the Germans, but <laughs> they don't want me to weigh in on these. Uh, so now we're going to have heritage with their opening statements. Individuals should be free to move across the U.S. border. Your opening. Uh, with thousands of children streaming across our border over the last few weeks, the United States desperately needs a tougher stance on immigration. It goes without saying that conservatives support opening up and simplifying the immigration system for skilled laborers and other applicants. But in order to have a country that is still worth coming to, one that is still economically stable, and one that is safe, we need to secure the border as soon as possible. Conservatives seek to balance the competing and important principles of free markets and a nation's right to secure itself. 
While we seek to be as compassionate and welcoming as possible, the pro-family arguments used by the left and libertarians have basically fallen apart in recent weeks. With children coming to America alone in droves, often arriving here with missing fingers and ears, many with severe psychological trauma from the trip, it becomes clear that conservative immigration reform stands on the side of families. There must be a sense of law and order if we want immigration to work. Libertarians should be more concerned than anyone by those who come here illegally and crowd the already overburdened social welfare, public education, and criminal justice systems. A report by the Heritage Foundation shows that taxpayers over time will pay more than $6 trillion in fiscal costs, erasing whatever advantages that might come from these unskilled workers over time. Another 2010 study shows that the average unlawful immigrant household receives $24,721 in government benefits and only pays back $10,334 in taxes. Lastly is the threat open borders pose to national security. America has its own problems with organized crime and doesn't need more spilling over the border, often with the support of the Mexican police. There also exists a serious threat of terrorists crossing our border if it is left unsecured. If libertarians want less surveillance in our country, it begins with protecting our borders. Right, and heritage with the rebuttal. Sure, um, so I'm actually gonna start off on the rebuttal too. Um, so there were three main points um, that the libertarians made in the last speech, and I, I wanna address each of them because I think that there's uh, a lot to be said here. I mean, they basically first start with comparing the free trade of goods with the free labor of immigrants. Um, which I think is a terrible comparison. I mean, we're looking at people who are coming here. We're looking at people. We're not looking at goods. We're not looking at a breakdown of, of, of economic factors that apply to these individuals. They come here with hopes and dreams. You have children from South America sending their children alone up here to come and find a job with the promise that they're going to be granted amnesty, they're going to be granted healthcare, and they're going to be granted education. That is not a promise we can keep to these people if the level of immigra illegal immigration keeps up. Um, secondly, they're, they claim that they're three times, they're likely to make three times as much here as they would in their own country. While I believe that to be true, they're not entitled to come here. Uh, we still live in a world that has borders and it's, it's harsh and it's unfortunate. We want to take as many as possible, but safety and, and economic stability have to take the precedent. All right. Now libertarians with rebuttal to that. All right. Um, it's true. Uh, they're not entitled to come here. And if we had a compelling interest to turn them away, uh, as if they were an army marching on our border or uh, people known to be terrorists, we would. When there are people coming to freely transact with Americans and, you know, who want to sell them their homes, who want to you know, uh, give them jobs, um, no nothing is gained by preventing them. Uh, they, our opponents also made three points. First of all, what, what about all these unaccompanied kids crossing the border? First point, most of them are actually coming to reunite with families here, the vast majority, something like 80%, according to Alex Narasta, a scholar here. Um, the reason why their families back at home aren't coming with them is because of our tough immigration laws. Second, security. It's already the case that any terrorist who gets to Mexico can pay a coyote about $4,000 to cross the border. Tougher border enforcement will never push that price all the way out of reach. Even North Korea has been unable to keep its people out. Um, on the other hand, open borders might truly be safer in the sense that the well-developed coyote system would be replaced by legal um, method. Third of all, welfare, build a border around the welfare state rather around the entire country. People should come to work and know that they're not gonna get any benefits in return. All right, good stuff. Uh, just a reminder, we are gonna be taking questions and you can tweet your questions if you're watching at home uh, to 
hashtag LVC debate. I guess that's libertarian versus conservative debate. Uh, so tweet it there, and we'll check it out. Uh, I do want to congratulate you. It's been civil so far. When, when they were putting down heroin, you didn't say thank you, Captain Buzzkill. <laughs> when you referenced Hitler and Nazism, you didn't say, you didn't go, you went there. Very good, I'll do that. You guys have been very, very good. Um, but you know what, I think it might change, because our next topic, our next topic is all drugs should be legalized. And thank you. Thank you. I think we, am I, am I correct, we start with the libertarians for this one. Is that right? Absolutely. Let's start with the libertarians. Anyone who believes at all in private property and individual liberty cannot with a straight face deny that people have the right to take drugs. If we have property rights in anything, we have a right to determine what we put in our very bodies. But attempts by the state to criminalize drugs not only violate personal liberty, they also wreak havoc on our society. However bad a drug is, our hopeless $41 billion a year attempt at prohibition is worse. As we discovered under prohibition with alcohol, most of the harms we associate with the drug stem from its illegality. First, criminalization produces hor horrible violence. When people deal in the black market, they can't resolve their disputes through legal institutions but have to resort to force. The raging conflicts between drug cartels have claimed at least 106,000 lives over the past eight years in Mexico alone. Second, criminalization destroys communities and families. We currently perform some one and a half million drug arrests a year, predominantly of young men in minority neighborhoods. Third, black markets tend to produce drugs of lower quality and higher potency. As observed by Columbia neuroscientist Carl Hart, untainted marijuana is vastly safer than alcohol. Pharmaceutical grade cocaine is actually similar to the painkiller codeine. Pharma grade methamphetamines are a little different from Adderall. Fourth, when drug users are developing a problem, prohibition exacerbates the health risks to them by deterring them from seeking help until it's too late. While not the perfect case study, Portugal well il illustrates these four principles. A 2010 study found that since decriminalizing all drugs in 2001, the country has witnessed a decline in strains to the criminal justice system, a decline in problematic drug use as addicts more often seek treatment, and a steep decline in drug-related harms, including a remarkable two-thirds drop in drug-related diseases. The lesson is clear. The government has no right and absolutely no good reason to treat drug use as a crime. If it's a problem, it's a health problem to the user, like smoking, alcoholism, or obesity. Let's treat it like one. <clears throat> Some call the marijuana legalization experiment in Colorado an experiment of the states being laboratories of democracy. An open-minded investigation shows that this experiment has had a negative impact, with dr dramatic increases in fatal car accidents due to pot, reports of 12-year-olds who smoke marijuana daily, and an overall failure from the state to protect consumers. There has been a host of recent research on the negative health impact of drugs that should cause us to think twice about a simplistic comparison between marijuana and alcohol. Francis Collins, head of the National Institute of Health, has noted to USA Today that there simply isn't enough research done on the po potentially harmful effects of marijuana. Many libertarians will say that because they know someone who does drugs or lives a normal life, there is no problem with legalizing drugs. But we make laws for general cases, not for exceptional situations. We don't need to ban every vice, but there is a concern that legalization will result in the normalization of the drugs that we now ban. There are many problems with the way drug laws are currently enforced, which our libertarian friends are quick to point out. However, drugs destroy lives, 
and legalizing all drugs is not the reasonable response to an in inadequate policy. Libertarians posture as if government regulations of drugs is unconstitutional. It isn't. State government police powers give them the right to regulate health, safety, morals, and the general welfare. The federal government has a responsibility for products crossing state lines and entering the country. We can have a reasonable conversation about whether certain policies help or hurt communities. But we should all agree that the libertarian view that all drugs should be legalized is an ideological assertion and not a policy question. All right, now Heritage rebuts. I'm sorry. Oh, the, sure. Yeah. The conservatives will rebut uh, the libertarians. Uh, come on. Uh, uh, <laughs> Can I start? Yeah. Okay. I'd just like to say, very few of us in this room know what it's like to grow up in a family broken by drugs, destroyed by drugs. And we're, we're very lucky for that. And we don't want to stand in the sidelines while people are, are, are suffering. We care about families and we care about children. There are certain things that are wrong. Drugs destroy lives. Right. And I just want to say off of that point, I mean, if you look specifically at the, the kinds of families that, that the libertarians are talking about being broken up, a lot of these same communities were the ones who were pushing for the drug war in the first place. I mean, especially looking at the African-American community uh, in, the, in the late 70s, in the early 80s with the crack epidemic. These were the people who were actually being hit by these legalized drugs. I mean, it, and it literally hit like a plague. Um, they were one of the, the major catalysts behind this drug war. And I think that it's important to know the history of the policy as, as well as its impacts. Um, the other point I want to make is that um, they basically say that the, the gangs and the black markets are going to go away. Uh, but if you actually look at the statistics on that and you look at the projections on that, there's still going to be government regulations, so it's still going to be cheaper through the black markets. And these gangs have been, been doing this for a long time and aren't going to let Libertarians. a new market come in. Yeah. Um, uh, first of all, uh, we heard that there's not enough research done on marijuana <coughs> to call it safe. Um, one large reason for that is because it's illegal. It's much harder. It's much harder to do studies because you know, I mean, you have to get your hands on an illegal product. Second of all, no, I mean, this is a serious point. We, we'd learn a lot. We know a lot more about the medicinal effects of all kinds of substances if we didn't have drug laws. Second of all, they point out that drugs destroy lives and the families that surround them. And yes, that's true. That's precisely why we want to lower the rate of problem drug use. As we know from Portugal, the way to do that is to legalize, or at least to decriminalize. People in a, in a problem situation are more likely to seek help and stop using a drug when they're not going to be punished for doing so. Uh, third, they pointed out that uh, the black community and many others uh, originally called for the drug war. Many government policies seem great before they're tried. You know, I mean, they are calling for it now, largely. Third of all, the gangs won't go away in the event of legalization. No more than the mafia went away after prohibition, but it caused it, and the path to reducing it is, is uh, to cut off their funding. All right. Our next topic is Edward Snowden is a traitor. And we're going to start with the conservatives on this one. Uh, it seems there's nothing libertarians are fonder of talking about these days than the overreach of the NSA and government spying on Americans. Caught in the crossfire of this debate is Edward Snowden, a traitor to this country. <laughs> While the courts and public sentiment, uh, including that of many conservatives, seem to favor reeling the NSA back in, the question of where Mr. Snowden should stand in American society must still be addressed. The fact remains that instead of speaking out uh, seeking out a sympathetic member of Congress and respecting the oath and process he pledged to uphold when assuming his position, 
Edward Snowden chose to recklessly steal over 2 million unfiltered and unread classified documents of the United States government and hand them over to a bunch of foreign news agencies. He did not use discretion to make sure that he only leaked information about government spying on Americans, and he did not use discretion in choosing which news agencies received the documents. Then, knowing what he did and unwilling to face the consequences, he fled to two of America's biggest rivals, some would say enemies, and has stated that his only regret was being unable to settle in an even redder country like Cuba or Venezuela. From his statements and actions, it becomes clear that Mr. Snowden does not care about America, does not care about personal liberty, and does not care about freedom. He cares about embarrassing his own country and making information available to our enemies. Regardless of whether or not government spying terrifies you or makes you feel safer in the face of terrorism, and regardless of whether NSA spying is ruled constitutional or unconstitutional uh, in many degrees, uh, any action or sentiment brought against the NSA after Snowden does not vindicate the way in which he brought this issue to everyone's attention. If a murderer is about to kill you, and I have no way to stop the crime but to kill the murderer, I myself am not a murderer for doing so, but a lifesaver. If a burglar is about to pick your lock, and the least intrusive way I can stop him is to steal his lockpick, I am not a thief, but a preventer of theft. Edward Snowden violated the internal mission of the NSA, namely, to spy on Americans for as long as possible without getting caught. But he did so only that his agency might stop violating the most basic rights of our people. Snowden may have betrayed the mission of the NSA, but that is precisely why, to we the people, he is a hero. Let us stipulate what we know. He's not a spy, he did not work with any foreign powers. He deliberated in choosing which journalists to release the documents to, and by all accounts, they have acted responsibly, working with the US government and withholding information that would unnecessarily damage US operation. The internal whistleblowing channels were broken, maintained by those with an interest in perpetuating the system. Edward Snowden showed the American people what our own government was doing, and for that, we should be thankful. Privacy is an essential component of liberty. Privacy is not merely the right to be left alone or to have secrets. It creates a space in which the individual is free to grow and explore, unencumbered by the coercive preferences of the state. Its value is seen in both the Fourth and Fifth Amendments. You have the right to keep things from the government, even if the government has no intention of prosecuting you. An off-level argument is the one has nothing to hide, one has nothing, done nothing wrong, then one should not be afraid. However, against arbitrary power, there can be no security without privacy. When those in power have free reign to decide what is a threat to the established order, there can be no innocent persons. Exposing the actions of the US government has led to an engaged debate over the proper scope of the US military and its control over those it is entrusted with protecting. Previous debates about this issue, to quote Julian Sanchez, had the character of a middle school playground discussion about sex, a largely speculative discussion among participants who'd learned a few of the key terms with only the vaguest sense of the reality they described. For this reason alone, Snowden's actions have strengthened this country and returned power from the government to the people. All right. And now libertarians will rebut Heritage's opening. Um, first, on a technical matter, treason is precisely defined in the Constitution, and Snowden did not violate that technical definition. But to move on from there, um, the argument that he should have gone about whistleblowing in a separate way uh, there have been two previous whistleblowers on this topic, Bill Benning and Thomas Drake, both of whom who attempted to provide this information to Congress, and neither of whom were taken seriously without the documents to back it up. Uh, the argument that he did not exercise discretion and disclosure is patently false. Um, every action that the news media has taken has been shown to be acted fairly responsibly. Um, finally, he 
the argument that he should turn himself in, that is a much closer question whether he should or not. Um, it doesn't change the fact that what he did is the right thing to do. And the question becomes whether we want to encourage or discourage whistleblowing in the future. Okay. And conservatives? Right. Um, so basically what I th where I think the divide on this question boils down to is that there are some people uh, who believe that the United States government should be trusted to keep us safe uh, and trust that they're going to do that in a responsible way that's respectful of our rights and there are people that don't. Um, my my <laughs> disclosure, um, I am more willing to trust people who are appointed and who have uh, accrued a, a lot of experience in the military field and the intelligence field to make a decision about what should be kept secret much more than I trust a news organization. Um, you have, you know, news organizations like the New York Times, which consistently proves that newspapers are much more interested in, in selling papers and peddling the ideologies of their, of their editors um, than people uh, in government, uh, at least in that branch. Uh, and I would also say that if you're going to do something like this, if you're going to go out on a limb, you have, to, you have to be a hero when you're doing it, and you have to be a role model while you're doing it, and you can't say that your judgment is better than, than a whole system of order that's been around a lot longer than you. All right. Uh, now we're going to go to a fun little segment. You just get one shot at this one. We're going to start with the libertarians, and the <coughs> prompt is why a libertarian, uh, excuse me, why a conservative should be a libertarian. You have three minutes. The extent of the alignment between conservatives and libertarian, which we sometimes take for granted, is in fact a curious phenomenon of the American project. In 18th century France, conservatism meant monarchism. In 16th century England, conservatism meant a belief that titles and professional occupations should be heritable. Just a few generations ago, here in America, conservatism meant fighting to prevent women's suffrage. Rand Paul is often described as libertarian-leaning, though he understandably prefers the more popular label constitutional conservative. Given the background and history of our Constitution, constitutional conservatism and libertarianism are quite similar. But do any of us seriously believe that if we lived under a socialist Constitution, Rand would, or anyone else claiming such a mantle would want to conserve the, those oppressive institutions it constructs? No, we don't. And he, we still believe, he would still believe that good policy consists of free markets, limited government, individual liberty, and peace. And he'd be fighting to change the Constitution to reflect those eternal ideals. With that in mind, observe that Heritage's declared mission is to promote, and I quote, conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and a strong national defense. These are quite similar to Cato's stated principles of free markets, limited government, individual liberty, and peace. The first three items on each list are essentially identical. The last reveals some differences in foreign policy and the scope of national defense being an issue upon which reasonable minds can defer. But the most conspicuous difference between the lists is that the conservative mantra seeks to snake in a fifth bullet point, traditional American values. Such a principle seems to fit only to the extent that it's redundant. It is a fortunate coincidence that in America, we have strong traditions of free markets, limited government, and individual liberty. The real fault line between libertarianism and conservatism then is the, there are some values to which conservatives hold, not because they promote liberty, but because they are traditional. Conservatism makes tradition an end in its own right. 
and fights to preserve it, even when, as in the case of restrictions on immigration and drug use, such policies restrict liberty rather than preserve it. Such is the tyranny of the status quo, cling to what was to prevent what could be. If any conservative here just walked off an airplane or out of a DeLorean and believes in monarchy or the abolition of women's suffrage or whatever, then conservative really is the philosophy for you. But if you're a standard American conservative of today who believes in America's traditional values because of the universal and objective ideals they tend to serve, then I dare say you already are a libertarian. I did mention my, I did mention my son's name, Burke, though, right? In the opening? Okay. Um, get, your, get your questions ready right after this. We're going to go to your questions. You can tweet them or we'll call on you. And now we go to the conservatives. Uh, why a libertarian should be conservative? So we'd like to show really what a conservative is and why a libertarian should be a conservative. I hope that so far we have shown that conservatives stand with libertarians in their love of liberty. We stand together in our opposition to big government. However, we also want to show that in order to protect the very liberty that we so cherish, we sometimes have to place those whom we care about ahead of ourselves. As I stated in the introduction, our rights do not replace our duties to family, neighbor, and our allies. Furthermore, our laws should not allow for the excessive individual freedom that libertarian philosophy lends itself to. The law should recognize those very institutions that are threatened by radical individual autonomy, the state, local associations, and religion. If these are undermined, it is a short path to a state tyranny. So the question before us tonight is, is which political philosophy is more desirable? Uh, it would obviously be desirable to live in a world where libertarianism is feasible, but an essential component of desirability uh, that we have to keep in mind tonight is sustainability. Uh, this element of sustainability, in addition to that of feasibility, is why libertarians should be conservative. Um, my, my opponent brought up in his speech that conservatives kind of cling to their traditionalism and their Burke, uh, whereas you know, libertarians are, are more principled um, in, a, in a more universalistic sense. And I think the main difference between conservatives and libertarians and why libertarians should note uh, and accept ultimately that, that traditionalism is the way to go is that conservatives don't believe we are that different than people that lived 100 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 2,000 and 5,000 years ago. Um, we're essentially the same in, in what we're composed of in, in, in our nature. Uh, and there's a hint of progress uh, within the libertarian speech just now that says we're going to try something new because we're new. Um, there's a hint of progress in there that just isn't true. If because we use smartphones and computers today makes us different than than someone who was still eating and drinking and raising their children and going to church 2,000 years ago um, or reading the newspaper. Well, it wouldn't be a newspaper, but uh, hearing the town gossip 2,000 years ago, um, I would say, yeah, I'd be all for that. Um, but the fact of the matter remains and the state of the world today shows that good and evil still exist. They apply equally today as they did uh, 2,000 years ago. And the 20th century itself should open people's eyes up to what is kind of progressive thinking and new ideas uh, instead of old ideas can do to the world and can do to individuals in it. All right, excellent. We're going to go to the Q&A now. I do want to warn you, uh, if you lecture, if, you, if instead of asking a question, you make a statement, 
I will have you removed from this premises. I've been, <laughs> I've been deputized and given the authority to do that. Individual freedom, we can just say whatever. So, let me get my glasses here so I can scope out if there's any uh, show of hands uh, right there. Yes, ma'am. Oh, I'm sorry, they'll bring, they'll bring the mics around. Uh, my question is for Mark on the conservative side. Regarding your last uh, statements about how we are not that different from people a long time ago, uh, there are a lot of practices from a long time ago that even conservatives would reject today. Uh, how is it that if that statement would support, say, anti-miscegenation laws, that you, you feel it's still justified to support other things? Sure. Yeah, so obviously, especially with, you know, the uh, the entrance of the American regime and kind of the fusion of, of traditional conservative values um, and Americanism and classical liberalism has done a lot to kind of open our eyes even further as to the nature of man. And, you know, when we talk, when conservatives talk in general about these issues of human nature and being the same as people were then, um, we're not expecting, you know, all of culture and all of technology and all of the, the positive things that have happened since then to, to go away. Um, and we accept that, that some progress has been good. Um, so, you know, you bring up anti-misogenation laws uh, as, as kind of the big thing, but if you actually look at that, uh, that was an American invention, um, you know, Interracial marriage was was a big thing a long time ago and remains the same uh, today as something that's that's acceptable because uh, a man and a woman come together, whether whatever race they've been, what is new, what is progressive, what is a redefinition of that institution is same-sex marriage, which the libertarians stand on the opposite side of the debate of. All right. Uh, I forgot to mention also, please, when, when you ask a question, uh, say who you are, what, if you want to mention an organization, where you're from, that sort of thing. Um, and, and do direct it toward, as you did a great job of, toward one of the uh, debaters. Any other questions? Yes, right over there. Hi, my name is Barrett. <clears throat> my name is Barrett. I'm at the Atlas Network. I have a question for the conservatives. I would like to know if you think homosexuality is a choice. I think that certainly feelings um, are not a choice. Uh, we all feel different things in different capacities in different areas um, in, in, in a bunch of different situations in our lives. Uh, but acting on that is, is a choice. Our actions are always a choice. Hmm. Um, and, and as conservatives, of course, we support everyone's decision to, to live how they please. Um, the definition of marriage is, is a separate question. Um, so if you want a yes or no answer, um, well, there's, there's not a clear-cut answer because it's divided. Feelings are different than actions. You guys want to weigh in on this? Um, sure. Uh, sure. Um, I, I think it's pretty, I think a lot of, most if not all social science research has demonstrated it's not a choice. Uh, to the extent that the conservatives argue that they support all people's 
ability to live their lives how they choose, it's clearly not true. Uh, and to the extent they wish to ban gay people from getting a marriage if they choose to do so. Well, but, and, and in particular, I mean, uh, uh, what was the case decided just, what, 12 years ago on the sodomy laws in Texas? Yeah. The name Lawrence, of the case Lawrence was? v. Texas. Yeah, Lawrence v. Texas. A few years ago. And, and, and Justice Scalia and, and, uh, and Thomas, you know, ruled in favor of those laws. So, I mean, um, they were clearly not libertarian laws, and there were clearly conservatives who supported them. So I'm not sure if the of course is really justified. All right, you're going to get a quick rebuttal, and then we go to the Q&A. Okay, I would just say, like, phrasing this as conservatives want to ban homosexual people from getting married is just wrong. Um, if if two, two gay people or two lesbian people want to consider themselves married, want to find an institution that supports that, they're more than welcome. Uh, what the discrimination they're talking about is actually government recognition and granting of benefits of marriage, which is a different question. This is the fun part, isn't it? Okay. <laughs> All the way in the back. My name is Taylor Caldwell. I'm an intern with Heritage. Uh, I would like one person from each side to explain... Um, where rights originate and how rights, uh, how the state should balance rights with uh, justice. I, I don't know if we have time for that, but we'll try. We're going to go real quick. Um, we'll start with you. Um, so where do rights come from? Rights come from the individual. The individual is an end of themselves. When we get together to form a society, we delegate some of those rights to the government through enumerated powers that we explicitly decide to give up for those benefits. Uh, to the extent, for this reason, there are, there's no real such thing as enumerated rights as defined in the Constitution. Rather, those uh, are rights that we explicitly protect from the government. But as we know, there are many other rights that exist for the individual. So we're Americans, and uh, you know, we should not be ashamed of saying our, our rights come from God, from our Creator. It's in our founding documents. Uh, to say that rights originate in the human person, uh, where does the human person come from? Where do we get uh, just this uh, explosion of different rights that we see today? Again, this very mindset is what's leading to the, the, the moral uh, upheaval that we're seeing today. We're, playing our, we're placing our individual rights against everything else in our society, all of our media and institutions, our family, our local associations, our communities. There's, you can name a right to almost everything today. If we don't ground our rights and duties, and our responsibilities to those around us, they're essentially meaningless. All right, like that. let's go to Twitter. Right there. This question is from Robert Olson, and he uh, says, the question he'd like to be answered at the LVC debate is, should we have so many military bases around the globe, or should we bring most of the US troops home? Why don't you all start, the conservatives? Yeah, so I think we saw in Iraq uh, this year what happens when we pull our military out of a country too fast. Um, basically, what our bases have done, both in Germany and in Japan um, in particular, is help us ensure a level of peace and order in those, in those countries and allow them to develop their own, their own economy and their own standing in the region. Um, the one in Japan in particular has showed our support for the independence of nat nations over there, especially with the, and, and has ultimately allowed us to check some of the aggression of China while also allowing us to open up um, more pathways for trade, which I know the libertarians love. You want to respond? 
Um, yeah, no. Is, is the answer we shouldn't have that many. Okay. Um, let's, uh, we, we, we currently have 144, uh, oh no, um, what is it, 600 bases over 144 countries. Um, and, uh, you know, even if you can justify the, the, the ones in Germany and Japan, it's harder to justify, you know, the other 142. It's, as I pointed out, um, our bases there allow them to develop their own economies. They're very developed now, you know, and they're as rich as we are in, in many respects. And what we're basically doing is subsidizing their social welfare states. Um, we have no reason to do that. We can devolve a lot of our military uh, you know, power over to them without really weakening, um, you know, the forces of good in the region or anything like that. Um, finally, I, you know, there's a famous quote from Madsen that the uh, that the the greatest threat to liberty here at home is a, is a large military that you know and the taxes that are needed to support it. Um, we have quotes from you know conservatives like Eisenhower about the threats that the military-industrial complex pose, poses to liberty here at home. Um, I, th I think we need to consider that even if we were, even if those bases did serve a legitimate purpose in securing liberty in the world, um, they, they can do a lot of harm to us in unforeseen ways. Over there. I'm Josh. I don't represent anybody but myself. Um, my question is for the conservatives. You've mentioned duty and responsibility quite a few times tonight. And my question is about suicide. So barring cases of insanity where it's harder to make a judgment call, there are many people for whom death would be preferable to suffering, whether it's from a debilitating disease or emotional suffering when a loved one has died or something traumatic has incurred. And so for these people, someone like Jack Kevorkian, you might remember him from your youth, was able to help them end their suffering without pain uh, in the way they wanted to. So why should these people, I have to assume that you would be against Kevorkian's uh, device, and if I'm wrong, please correct me, but why, if so, why should these people be forced to endure misery and suffering for the sake of duty <coughs> or for their families? And why is the objective good classified as a function of the family rather than as the happiness of the individual? That's a good question. Uh, again, so there, there are certain things that we know are in themselves good. We know that, that life is good, for example. We know that our friendships are good. Uh, our ability to reason and to obtain knowledge is, is a good in itself. Uh, so therefore, uh, th there's, there's no case in which that life should be taken. Uh, an innocent life should be willingly taken. Um, and that includes someone's right to kill them, their own person, to kill themselves. Uh, would you like to say anything else about that? Yeah, I mean, I would just say that it's, conservatives basically look at every decision and every action as something that people should take it as, as an example. Um, and for conservatives, suffering as a bad um, is never going to outweigh the good that is life. Uh, it, it's, it's a horrible example that if you suffer too much, then your life isn't worth living. And it, it always is. And there's always hope. Um, even in suffering, there, there may be moments. Um, but even if they're not, uh, we also view you know, life as, as a natural right, as something that has been given to you and you, you can't get rid of, um, even yourself. Is it, yeah. uh, evil ought never to be done, even if a good may result. Um, and this, this, is, this is the basis of our natural law, of our human nature that underlies most of conservative philosophy. Do you guys want to rebut that or move uh, on? Just one quick thought is that none of the philosophy that you espouse is uh, incompatible with the libertarian idea of, of personal choice. It would just be that, you know, you'd have to convince the suffering person to buy into that philosophy and then not to kill himself. Can I challenge you guys real quick? Sure. What about the precedent of uh, where you have uh, 
the government all of a sudden now saying, well, if, if, if it's okay to put somebody out of their misery, they may not know that it's in their best interest mm. for us to help them into the hereafter. Isn't there a slippery slope toward euthanasia and death panels? Well, I think that's precisely why the conservative position should not prevail. The idea that the government or those in power or our moral superiors happen to know what's in our best interests. It's up to the individual to determine what is in their best interest. And I think that the libertarian position is quite clear on that. Okay, one real quick. I think this, this, this whole uh, notion of, of moral relativism is completely absurd, and, it, and it's completely destroying Western society. There are certain things that we know is good. Our life is good. Uh, the ability to be here and discuss with you right now is a good thing. And this ought never to be, never to be taken away from us. An innocent life ought never to be taken away, even if some are suffering, even if a supposed good of killing oneself may result. Uh, there are certain things that are sacred and the line should never be, should never be crossed universally. All right, more questions. Uh, right there. Yes. Hi, I would like to hear both sides' opinion about the Federal Reserve. Why don't you go, why don't you start? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I think that uh, the Federal Reserve is one example of political elites' uh, ability to convince themselves that that they're you know so much wiser than everyone that that they have you know that they should have the right to intervene at will in the, the lives of others to the or the economy as a whole. Um, taking a very bird's eye view, of course. Um, there, there, are, there are libertarian approaches. I mean, there's a, libertarians have a broad spectrum of uh, opinions on monetary policy, and uh, you know, the Federal Reserve in particular. So, I don't, I don't know if I can speak about libert, you know, on behalf of libertarianism as a whole. I, is that a? You, you have a thought. Um, <laughs> so, the Federal Reserve, I guess, is an example of the government managing the economy. Um, there are some very, very, very smart people who advocate for the Federal Reserve and some very smart people who disagree with that. Um, the monetary policy is unfortunately not my background. Um, I don't have too many more thoughts on that. Monetary policy is boring, but <laughs> you want to take a stab at it? I would just say that, you know, we're probably largely aligned with, with the libertarians on this issue. I mean, we believe that the invisible hand, like the invisible man, should not be ignored as much as possible. Um, and basically, you have an agency that's, that's manipulating markets and manipulating uh, the level of cash and, and inflation we have filtering around our nation. And if you get the wrong people in there, just like if you get the wrong people in the White House and in Congress, uh, they're going to start letting their philosophy rather than, I guess, their prudence um, control how that system operates. So as, as a tool that is as powerful as, as I think the Fed is right now in determining monetary policy uh, is the level to which I would say it needs to be approached with a level of caution and ultimately weakened institutionally in a way that somebody more smart than I do knows how. I think I drifted off there. Let's, let's <laughs> move on. Uh, I yes. thought of something better I could have said. No, right there, you. 
Hi, my name is Ethan Wright. I work at the Institute for Justice this summer. Um, and my question, if I'm allowed to, goes to both briefly. Um, a lot of you talked about very subjective things about you know, how we can measure human flourishing and the goodness of certain things, of, of liberty and of life and so forth. Um, insofar as we have objective standards of human flourishing, of you know, people escaping poverty, people being able to eat and communicate, uh, if the opposing side's philosophy could be shown in objective terms uh, to create better outcomes for human flourishing, what would you hold as a position? Would you change, or how would you modify, or not at all? Um, I'm confused at the question. Yeah, what, what, what are those objective outcomes? I mean, I said that at the beginning I defined, like, good outcomes, just sort of as axiomatically as yeah, from please, the libertarian position yeah. as those which... So if, if uh, for example, the conservative policy of much, much tighter borders could actually be shown to uh, create a much better situation for people in America. Um, better. Create better economic outcomes objectively across the board, uh, decrease poverty, increase security, increase access to basic human So you're resources. asking, are, are they open to changing their mind if they were proven... Yeah, if I'm, I'm asking if based on the empirical evidence, because a lot of this is a right. you know philosophical and less empirical debate. If the empirical evidence was stacked thoroughly against you, how would you modify? How your wedded are you to libertarian dogma? Um, <laughs> no, that's well, a, a perfect. Yeah, to the, to the extent that outcomes determine values, I think um, to the extent that we hold libertarian values, I believe we hold them because they have good outcomes um, overall. We. It's very difficult to get down to the nitty-gritty of every single policy, balancing it on a utilitarian scale. Uh, we need overall guiding principles, and I believe the best one is <coughs> a presumption of liberty. So uh, conservatives always seek the truth, and will go where it takes us. Um, unlike our libertarian counterparts, we believe there is a truth that is worth seeking. Um, and there are, there are certain things that, um, that we could do very you know, concretely, like uh, protecting marriage. I mean, based on the truth that a ch child deserves a mother and father. Uh, which has uh, verifiable results for both the, uh, the uh, liberty of individuals, defending us against statism, um, protecting uh, healthy families, communities, etc. Um, and uh, we'd love for the libertarian philosophy to come to fruition, but it's just simply not grounded in reality. All right, let's go to Twitter. Okay, this question is from uh, Professor uh, Randy Barnett, who I believe is actually sitting a few rows from me. But uh, to the conservatives, he would like to ask you which position the libertarians hold most appeals to you, and to the libertarians, which conservative position that they hold most appeals to you as well. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> like I said in our introduction, we're, we're political allies on, on most issues that we face today. I mean, ultimately, we're, we're friends here. We're on the same side in 2016 or uh, in, in general. Um, we both say no to big government. Um, uh, anything else you want to, any policy issues you want to? Yeah, I would say that some of their more radical stances on probably lowering taxes and, a good um, you know, driving down the, the welfare state are, are good. Um, you know, I wish that it seemed more feasible in society today. I mean, the other side is, is very strong. Um, and, and any kind of cuts, as, as we've seen, are, are very difficult. But to, to know the principles inside and out, as well as many libertarian friends that I know, um, I, is very appealing to me. Mm. Um, obviously, the, you know, 
for each of us, our favorite position that the other one holds is going to be somewhere in our area of overlap. So that, that, that that's not very illuminating, I think. Um, but my no, I just you know. Your question my, wasn't that good, but my, my, <laughs> he's going to tolerate it. No, I. <laughs> I'm, I'm joking. <laughs> you know, what I mean is like, so like obviously I could, I'll just respond by saying, you know, we agree with conservatives' position on lower taxes and a, a smaller welfare state and so on. Um, but uh, I don't know. I, I think um, one thing to keep in mind, uh, even though we didn't get much to foreign policy uh, except in one of the questions, is that um, libertarians do believe fundamentally in uh, a government's right to protect uh, the nation from foreign aggressors. How big the military has to be is an empirical question, and maybe we think it should be smaller than they do. Um, but I, I can get behind that in principle in the way that I really can't get behind the state's intervention in what what drug uh, what drugs a person uses or who crosses the border. So make that distinction. All right. How are we doing on time? Are you keeping time? Are we? Mo I think. All right. I think we have time for one more, oh. and I'm going to go right there. Yes, you. To the conservatives, what do you say to other conservatives out there who believe that heavy campaign finance regulation is doing anything but uh, making sure that the ultra wealthy have, you know, the, uh, the freest ability to get their money out there? I mean, they can hire a lawyer like myself in campaign finance and just get it right through. I was actually calling on the lady behind you, but that's okay. <laughs> I'm going to go to you next, but please. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, Which is it? Do you want to go? You can go. All right. Um, so basically on campaign finance, uh, the, the reason this is, I think, as big an issue um, for conservatives as it is, is because it's intimately tied with looking at, um, at corporations as people. Um, I could be wrong about this because um, this isn't, one of the areas I specifically spent a lot of my attention um, diverted to, but I think basically you have to, America has to have a general rule of thumb, a general cap for everybody. Uh, and just to say that if, if that cap needs to be lowered, um, that's something we could talk about maybe, um, but I'm probably missing the point of the question because I'm really not as up to speed as I should be on the issue. All right, you wanna go now? Let's try it one more. And this will be our last question, and then we'll go to the conclusion. Thank you. Uh, my question is on immigration policy. So I wonder, oh, sorry, it's, a, it's to the conservatives. Um, and I wonder how you think that people who came in before 1875, uh, which is 100 years after the nation was founded, and which, uh, which is the first immigration restriction was put in place, so how do you think the people who came in before that year and people who came in, who tried to come in after that year are different? Sure. Um, so I think that, I mean, I'm going to assume given our I mean, heritage basically that both of our, or all of our ancestors basically, except probably one on my mom's side came in after 1875. Um, I think the way they see it differently um, is that basically they, they know what it's like to come here because of the American dream. You know, the Civil War was over by 1875, and, you know, it really wasn't the big economic boom yet, um, but definitely the, the country changed uh, after that time period, and it really began to attract people 
on an economic level um, and on a level of opportunity that it didn't, um, you know, the people who came before that. Although they, of course, had their reasons too. I mean, religious liberty and tyranny under monarchs and, and whatnot. But uh, I'd just like to say, I mean, we, we're a nation of immigrants. My dad, he was born in Argentina. He came here for a better life, just like every, almost everyone in America came here uh, for the freedoms that, that we cherish. Um, but I want to squash this notion that uh, this question seems veiled as if conservatives are against immigration. I mean, we are, we are the ones who, who want people to come here, to, to work hard, to innovate, uh, to reform, our, to, you know, to, to move our country. Um, and uh, we are the ones taking the balanced approach here. We're not for deporting families, tearing apart families. We're not for the other extreme, but amnesty and open borders. We need a balanced approach that uh, balances our competing and important principles um, and that ultimately leads to a safer nation in the end as well. And I think, and I think people who have come here more recently understand um, what that's like, but have also waited in line. And they're probably yes. looking at the current situation like, you have to play by the rules, guys, and you can't jump in line. Yeah. I'm sorry. We Justice all, we all worked virtual. hard. We all waited to get in here. Do a quick rebuttal the from the libertarians. Okay. Um, the, well, immigration law has changed many times, of course, since 1875, including sort of demographically. So, you know, the... the the kinds of immigrants that have come have, have changed a lot in the years since then. Um, but uh, the one thing they all have in common is that, as, as you mentioned, they, they all had to wait in line in some sense, even if it was just for a little while at Ellis Island. And uh, uh, unfortunately, nowadays, um, even that line is closed off to, um, uh, to many immigrants. If you're not from the right country with the right you know, skill set as determined by uh, you know, the Immigration Naturalization Service, um, there's often no line that you can get into. There's literally no way that you can get a work visa to come to the United States, even though you happen to know that there are employers here that, and you know, willing to employ you and, and people willing to sell you a house and food and clothing. Um, that, that deprives both the immigrants and, you know, the Americans who wanted to serve them um, of, of the gains of doing so. Um, it, immigration... You know, I mean, immigration has slowed, um, in, and you know, illegal immigrants um, are much more common now, of course, than, than they were before 1875, because you know you couldn't be illegal in the age of open we border. Prefer, we prefer undocumented. Undoc. Well, <laughs> but uh, you know, either way, um, and. Uh, uh, with being labeled illegal or undocumented and kind of the the complete absurdity of letting millions of people in while sort of pretending that you're not actually letting them in and, and not acknowledging, um, you know, their, uh, their presence and occasionally threatening to deport them every time the economy gets bad or whatever, the, ho the whole sort of ridiculous system that, that we've had for, for the past several decades, which started, as you pointed out, in 1875, it's probably produced a lot of immigrants um, with a lot less respect for the law. And, um, you know, I mean, there's a hundred differences. There's many differences there are immigrants, but I, those are just some thoughts from the libertarian perspective. All right, interesting stuff. Um, now we're gonna go to the concluding remarks. And before the night began, we flipped the coin and the conservatives won, so they got to go first, which means the libertarians get to go last, which means the conservatives will go first. Uh, you have four minutes for they always win. How is that? They always get to go first. You have four minutes for a concluding remark. And please do it from, if you would, come up to the podium. We'll be official this way. All right. So thank you.
thank you all again for coming tonight, and uh, another thank you to, to Cato for hosting us. Um, and I'll proceed. Uh, so we've all agreed tonight that government plays too large a role in our society today, and that freedom is the most important thing a state can feasibly give to its people. However, looking at the two political frameworks before us tonight, one side is clearly better at protecting and ensuring that freedom. Libertarians, though allies in the cause for freedom, continually err in framing politics on a structural rather than a philosophical level, while at the same time being idealistic in their political initiatives. Such framing has led libertarians to reckless and short-sighted policy solutions like opening our borders, supporting the campaign against religious liberty in America, and withdrawing aid from our allies. But more importantly, such framing continually leads libertarians to misunderstand the real underlying threat to our country's future. That threat is extremism and is being carried out all over the world by progressives and radicals who seek to intimidate rather than convince and to conquer rather than to find common ground. Freedom is not a status. It's a way of life that embraces sacrifice and moderation in pursuit of ends higher than ourselves. And unless lovers of freedom recognize that battles must be fought to protect that freedom, now and in the future, domestically and abroad, personally and interpersonally, the way of life we currently enjoy will continue to be threatened and diminished. Those on the fence tonight have to ask themselves on what level policy is really decided in this country. Looking at the last hundred years, especially with the rise and fall of communism in the Obama administration, it is clearly that our country is no longer arguing over policy solutions, but over completely different, different visions of what America and the world should look like. These visions and the policies that stem from them are what continually prevail over people and institutions of power alike. There are currently two visions. There is a vision that centers on individuals and their communities, where people are strong and independent, where they understand the, the importance of sacrifice and restraint, and where they look out for their neighbors. The other is a vision that centers on the collective, where people are expected to conform to the plans set out by intellectuals and bureaucrats, where they only learn to expect things from others, yet live for themselves, and where government and political correctness discourage the well-intentioned. One is a vision of humility and gratitude, the other is self-righteousness and anger. One favors equality and liberty, the other to equality and bond, bondage to personal license in the state. Of course, most libertarians are on the right side of this divide, but many ask why politics simply can't be a question of the size of government, why virtue and culture need to be injected into the political discourse. The answer is that there will always be those who are discontent with the current order, those who want to tear down the happy and successful in the false hope that it may be able to help the less fortunate those who have never been given the principled education and unconditional love that introduces one to true freedom. Knowing this, conservatives strive to set a good example as individuals and as a nation in the hopes that one day people may come to see things the way we do. While this is life's mission for conservatives, we recognize that no person can be forced to accept such freedom and must choose to embrace it on their own. But before being accepted, it must be understood. An individual must understand that his community has given him much and that to his community he owes much in return. He must understand that his actions set an example for those around him, especially his children, that America was founded on principles by educated and well-intentioned men, that there are acts of evil going on in the world today that are beyond most of our comprehension, and that the great challenges posed by the world constantly need great men and great people to take them up, whether that means serving, in the country, serving our country in the military, staying home to raise one's children and make sure they get a good education, giving up part of one's hard-earned income to help others get back on their feet, or taking a second job rather than accepting a government handout. To understand these challenges, to understand that freedom is never just freedom to or freedom from. It is always freedom for. 
Whether that choice, our freedom, is used to sustain the principles, institutions, and strengths that keep this choice in place for future generations of Americans, or will be used to defend lying down in the face of Islamic extremism, aggression from Russia and China, drug addiction, welfare for a rapidly growing number of illegal immigrants, the banishment of religion from society and schools, abortion, physician-assisted suicide, and the continued erosion of the family through sexual license and abdication of responsibility is the choice we are left with tonight. Thank you all for coming. Final word from the Libertarians. As we have seen tonight, the Libertarian and the Conservative agree in many ways and on many issues. We both endorse the principles of the free market, which has been shown to be the greatest engine of prosperity the world has yet seen. We believe that individuals have the right to form voluntary relationships to trade goods and services, unencumbered by unnecessary regulation and government intervention. We share many of the same thinkers, ideas, and values. We both share a love of social institutions that promote the good in our society, the family, religious institutions, civic organizations, and assertion to the contrary notwithstanding, we share a love of future generations. Both conservatives and libertarians want the good to flourish now and in the future. Where we differ is how best to accomplish that goal. Conservatives have a sincere desire to protect and preserve the blessings of liberty we enjoy today. However, they would preserve such blessings with formaldehyde, preserving the outer facade, but not the true nature of freedom. They mistake the outcome of liberty with its cause. Thriving social institutions do not exist because of government fiat. Rather, they are the product of voluntary associations of persons coming together to enact a shared good. Individuals must have the freedom to choose wrong in order for them to learn to choose right. The good cannot be defined and imposed from above. Many have claimed to know what the good is, and many have been wrong. To quote Judge Learned Hand, heretics have been hated from the beginning of recorded time. They have been ostracized, exiled, tortured, maimed, and butchered. But it has generally proved impossible to smother them. And when it has not, the society that succeeds has always declined. The conservative must be aware that virtues are ideas, and ideas thrive when those who hold such ideas thrive. Good virtues will grow, not because they're imposed by those who hold power, because they are good for those who hold them. The people must be free to explore and to grow if we are to have a secure, stable, and prosperous society, not just now, but in the future. For these reasons, the libertarian position is superior in both principle and practice. Both a property in one's body and evidence of the effects on the individual and on the community, counsel ending the drug war. The economic benefits of free trade and the humanitarian needs demand opening immigration. Respect for the institution of the family and of consenting adults demands getting out the state out of the marriage business. The knowledge problem and financial reality should tighten the scope of our military. So what does it mean to be a libertarian? We are not anarchists, most of us. <laughs> we do not believe in total license to do as you please. Such lawlessness is abhorrent to the rights of the individual. We're not libertines. Again, most of us. We believe in morality and have values outside of our own self-interest. We're not atomistic. We recognize the importance of society and of social institutions, and we wish to fully engage in them. Rather than, to borrow from Jeffrey Myron, a libertarian is a person who has a great respect for the ability of the individual to make reasonable choices and decide what is in their best interest. 
We couple this belief with an inherent distrust of the ability of government and the ability of those in power to make people better, economically or otherwise, through endorsement, coercion, or force. Individuals engaging in voluntary associations, undirected by central planners, produce the best outcomes over time. I wish again to leave you with a quote from Judge Learned Hand. Concerned with the faith placed in the government to secure liberty, he extolled, liberty lies in the hearts of men and women. When it dies there, no constitution, no law, no court can save it. Tonight, let us choose to keep that spirit of liberty alive, both for ourselves and our posterity. Thank you. Fun night. Hey, and this is going to be playing out, as I said, for the next couple of years. Let's give everybody, uh, the conservatives and the libertarians, another round of applause.